Well, good evening, everyone. All right, what's well, Sunday night, uh, and it's also Super Bowl Sunday, and those two don't always go together very well, um, but we're all here together, and that's a subject we have to work through as a church. Every, every year, the churches have to work through this idea. It's nothing new. It's been going on for decades. How is the church going to handle Super Bowl Sunday? Uh, different, different ideas. Some people say, uh, well, do we cancel it? And some people say, yeah, it's only once a year. Why not? It's a big deal in, the, in, the, in our culture. Let's just cancel it. And then someone else comes and says, so you mean we're going to cancel church so our members can watch beer commercials? I say, well, okay, let's... Then they say, okay, let's try this other option. If you can't beat them, join them. We're going to come together as a church, and we're going to watch the Super Bowl. But then the problem comes, the pastor has some explaining to do whenever Janet Jackson's on the halftime show. And that really happened. It really happened. Uh, not here, but somewhere else. So... Here we are, full circle. We're back here together Sunday night, Super Bowl Sunday, and you see our rationale. But if you look too entertained, I'll know something's up, uh, because my dad has a story he, he experienced when he was pretty young um, at Temple Heights. Bob knows a little about Temple Heights as well, and so does Scott. Um, there was someone with the earbud during the Sunday night service listening to the Super Bowl. <laughs> And then I can't remember exactly what happened. Someone they scored a touchdown. The earbud dropped out and made a ruckus around him. Uh, they probably thought he was Secret Service up to that point, but then the, the secret was out. But there's, besides those jokes, there's nothing I can do, absolutely nothing I can do that's going to be more entertaining than what you can see on TV tonight. I know that, and you know that. But if you came here, that means you do want the, the Word of God. And by God's grace, that's what you'll get because we're going to look at it, and we want to see what it says. We want to be edified but what God has for us. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord again in a time of prayer. Lord, we do love you. Uh, we are your people, and we do want to hear from you. Lord, as we, if we do not hear from you, if we neglect your word, if we avoid your word, we do dry up on the inside. We dry up spiritually, and we need your nourishment. We need to be constantly nourished on the words of faith. I pray you do that for us tonight, Lord, that we would feast on your word, and, Lord, that it would give us nourishment, nourishment to get us through a, a new week in a way that's pleasing to you, a way that's going to be helpful to those around us, in a way that's going to make us evangelistic to the people around us who don't know Christ. Lord, I pray that we would seek you. Please give us your power and help us to rely on you as we look at your word tonight. We do pray, pray for uh, Joe's mom, Teresa. I'm not sure where she stands with you. So, Lord, we pray that if she does not know, you pray that you would intervene before she passes. Please give Joe some kind of opportunity to talk to her. Please give them peace, Lord. Help them through this difficult time as a family. Help this time to bring them closer together and especially closer to you. Help this to be a time for family members who don't know Christ to be brought to Christ, to meet the living Christ, and that they would be saved from their sins. Pray you'd be honored in all these things, what we do tonight and this week. We do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have your hand up by now, you'll see that tonight we're going to talk about the man, the myth, the legend, and you guessed it, this is why Daniel came tonight, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Several weeks back, we covered chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, and there we started in a new section in Hebrews called, that we're calling Jesus superior to the Levites. So that was basic instruction about what the, the basic qualifications for the priesthood are, and we saw how Jesus related to those 
And at the very end of that section, who did it mention? Really briefly, it mentions this guy named Melchizedek, that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But the author interrupted that comment, saying, okay, now i got to warn you guys. I need to rebuke you. You guys are spiritually lazy and you're listening. You're not listening to the gospel. you are become dull of hearing. I have to rebuke you now. I have to warn you that if you stay in that state, you have no hope of eternal life. But then he went on again to encourage him and say, but I'm convinced of better things for you guys, things that accompany salvation. And he went on to encourage him. And last week we ended that section with the hope that we have as an anchor for the soul. But what, who did it mention at the very end of that passage? Melchizedek. Right back to Melchizedek. So that's been five weeks ago. We started that excursus, uh, went off the main trail of the argument, and now we're back on the main trail in chapter 7, the main trail about what does this guy Melchizedek have to do with Jesus. Now, we need to establish who we're dealing with before we dive into the flow of the passage. We need to try to resolve some difficulties, because when people think of the name Melchizedek, they think of difficulties, things that are hard to understand. First question, who is Melchizedek? And this is the question we'll be answering as we go. This question is usually difficult for two reasons. Why is that? It's because we're dealing with one very limited information on Melchizedek and who, and who he is. And because of that, another difficulty is that there's all kinds of opinions about who he is. So that makes it difficult. Uh, next question. How do you pronounce this guy's name? I'm not sure what's more difficult, trying to figure out how to say his name or how to figure out who he actually is. I've heard everything from Melchizedek to Melchizedek, and everywhere in between. Um, but we're going to go with Melchizedek. Okay, Melchizedek, or if we're really technical, you could say Melchizedek. Okay, put the emphasis there in the second to last syllable. But that's free information. I won't charge you for any of that. Next question. How many places in the Bible is Melchizedek mentioned? Quiz time. How many places in the Bible is he mentioned? How many books of the Bible? Put it that way. Two for sure. Three. Three places. What are those places? Genesis chapter 14, Psalm 110, which Dave read for us, and then Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. It's mentioning him. Um, There's no information anywhere else in Scripture. We'll see you later on. There is information on Melchizedek outside of Scripture, but this is all we have to see in God's written word. Let's look back at Genesis 14. Turn there for a moment. We need to see some background. I'm really not sure how far we're going to get tonight. Usually I do know, but tonight I don't. Turn to Genesis 14. Just by way of background, there was a war going on between the kings that lived during Abraham's time. Then he was known as Abram. And now these weren't kings like you see today over really large countries. These were rulers over smaller places, okay? So, but you have all these kings in this smaller geographical area in ancient Palestine and the surrounding areas. Uh, the Hobbit. Anyone ever read the book Hobbit or seen the movie? You know, what, what's, what's the battle that happens in the Hobbit? How many armies? If I remember correctly, there's a battle of five armies. Battle of five armies. And it's, it's just Frodo Baggins is looking back, or no, Bilbo Baggins is looking back saying, wow, all these different armies fighting this one battle. But this battle with Abraham in that time, it was four kings against five kings. So you have nine different coalitions, whatever you want to call them, they're fighting together fighting against each other. But what city gets taken in the process? Sodom. Who lives there at that time? Lot. What happens to Lot? He ends up getting captured. Lot finds himself in a lot of trouble. 
He gets caught by the kings there. So someone escapes, though. And they run and they tell Abraham what happened. Hey, Lot is, has been captured. He's been taken captive. So then Abraham does something that we usually don't think of when we think of Abraham. Look at verses 14 through 16. Look what Abraham does. Abram. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he said, oh, great. What are we going to do? Let's sit back and just hope he comes. He let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. He pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Wow, he took action. Abraham's more of a military guy than we had imagined. So that, all, that, that story of the, the, the war forms the background of his meeting of this guy named Melchizedek. Now look at verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedalaomer, not Chedorlaomer, okay, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, he said, the king of Sodom is, comes out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that's the king's valley, verse 18, and here he is, okay, here's Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was priest of the Most High God, of God Most High. And what did he do? He blessed him. He blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then what did Abram do? Gave him a tenth of all. And we'll return to some of this information later on. But the next question we have in resolving some of these difficulties the hard question now. Is Melchizedek Christ? Don't answer it out loud yet. But is Melchizedek the Christ? Some people in church history have concluded that Melchizedek is the Son of God himself. They say that he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, that he's someone who appeared on the scene before Jesus came in the first century incarnate in the flesh. Some people do believe that. But I want you to see in the text some reasons why that's not true. Look back at Hebrews chapter 7. Number one reason, it says Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Okay? It does not say that he was the Son of God, but he was made like the Son of God. And the second reason, look at verse 11. It says another priest. You see that? Or Jesus was another priest in comparison to Melchizedek. And you see it again in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says Jesus was another priest. So he's, he's distinguishing these two characters. The third reason is that the Bible never describes Jesus as without father, without mother, without genealogy. In fact, the Gospels go to great lengths to show those details, okay? So those are three reasons at least that Jesus is not Melchizedek. And this is a majority opinion now, but in the, in the past people have said that Melchizedek is the Christ. If he is not the Christ, then who is he? And why is he included in this central argument? of the book of Hebrews. This is the core of the chapter. We're right in the heart of the book. Why does Melchizedek get a whole chapter, plus some before that? Why is he so important? And this is what I want you to see tonight, and this is what we're going to be looking at over this, this, uh, this week and next week, is that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Melchizedek's job was to prefigure Christ. He was to show an image of Christ before Christ ever arrived on the scene in the first century A.D. His job was to give us a glimpse of what Christ would be like. 
He was to illustrate and teach us about who Christ would be and what he would do. That was Melchizedek's job. And you see these glimpses all throughout the Old Testament in other ways. You see Moses raised up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's another glimpse of Christ. Uh, you have the blood of gold, you had the blood of goats and bulls. They were to point ahead to the blood of Christ. These glimpses of Christ in the Old Testament. What about the earthly tabernacle? That was there to illustrate that Jesus was going to one day do work in the heavenly tabernacle. That's what the book of Hebrews talks about. So you have these glimpses of Christ. But when you get to Melchizedek, his specific role is to teach us about the priesthood of Christ, what the priesthood of Christ is going to look like. This chapter shows why Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek really matters, to show that there's another priesthood that beats the Levitical priesthood, something that's better, to prove that we can rely on everything that God has said so far in the book of Hebrews about the certainty of our hope. Because Jesus is our high priest. This reinforces everything we've been learning about how we can actually persevere because Christ is our great high priest. And tonight we're going to look at four ways Melchizedek points us to Christ. You have your notes there. Four ways that Melchizedek points us to Christ. Number one. He shows us how Christ is both priest and king combination of both priest and king. You see in verse 1. Chapter 1 has already told us that he's a prophet. He's actually the best prophet. And this is how in theology we can have the threefold office of Christ of what? Prophet, priest, and king. But notice the emphasis in this verse. Look at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, this is the guy who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. But in this verse, what are the two roles that you see? king and priest. Now, is it a coincidence that Melchizedek is the only other man in Scripture who fulfilled both offices of priest and king? Is that a coincidence in this passage? I think it's definitely more than a coincidence. Think back to the reading of Psalm 110. David even mentioned it in his prayer. What did Psalm 10 emphasize? 110 emphasize. Referring to Jesus, the coming Messiah, who is going to fulfill both roles of king and priest. Both roles. Now, we've already, several weeks ago, we already mentioned what happened to King Uzziah. Remember King Uzziah? We, we talked about what he did whenever he tried to take over the role of priest and what happened to him. You don't have to turn there, but Second Chronicles 26 said, When King Uzziah, when he became strong, his heart was proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Why? What did he do? For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar. What did God do? Struck him with leprosy. And he lived as a leper to the day he died, cut off from the people. The, the, the kings were not allowed to go into that territory, and the priests were not allowed to go into the territory of kings. They weren't allowed to mesh. So think about how significant this is. Before the Jewish people ever had a king, before the Levitical priesthood was ever even established, God planned that one person would fulfill both roles perfectly in God's eternal plan. Turn to Zechariah 6. Zechariah 6, 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Zechariah. You see this later on in Old Testament prophecy as well. Look at Zechariah 6, 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Listen to this. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. 
That's great language. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. Christ is the fulfillment of these prophecies. We might argue about when he's going to fulfill it. We can argue about that all night. But he is the fulfillment. He's going to do it. This is him. In Christ, we have one who both rules and represents. Now, you can think about this on the human level. You might have people who can come alongside and sympathize with you, and that can, be comfort, that can give you comfort. But sometimes they might not have much power, and they might not really can be able to do anything to alleviate your circumstances. And then you might have the person who's really powerful and can change things around you, but he has no sympathy whatsoever. He only rules. But what about the person where you see both of those things happening at the same time, someone who both rules and represents you? That's an amazing thing, and that's what we have in Christ. Let's look at number two now. He shows us, Melchizedek shows us what kind of priest king Christ would actually be. He shows us his character, shows us his qualities, shows us what kind of priest king, that combination of the offices, what he was actually going to do, what he was going to be like. And here in verse 2, the author of Hebrews picks up on just four words, just four words from Genesis 14, quotes them, and shows us how significant they are. What are those four words? Melchizedek, king of Salem. Four words. Scripture interprets Scripture. True or false? This is a very clear case where you see this happening, of one part of Scripture telling us, explaining what's happening in another part. Two qualities we learn about Melchizedek. First of all, by the translation of his name, and second of all, by the place where he reigned. Those two things. So let's look at first the translation of his name. How, how do we decide what we're going to name our children today? What kind of rationale do we use? Sometimes we pick names that remind us of beauty, right? Like Rose. That's a beautiful thing, and it's a, that's a pleasant name to name your daughter, not your son. Maybe we name them after something we hope they're going to do one day. I knew a family, that had, I think they had three or four boys, and they named all of their kids after hunting. So you had uh, Hunter, Trapper, and Skinner. And think, not Skinner. I, was, that, I made that one up. But they had all hunting names, things that they would hope they would do one day. Yeah, that, that's not true. Uh, sometimes we name them after an attribute. We have mercy in the room, don't we? And that's a beautiful name, too. Where We have grace, we have joy, we have aletheia, which means truth. Um, what sometimes we name our kids because we want it to reflect their relationship we hope they'll have with God one day, like Daniel, God is my judge, or Timothy, I don't know if Tim is in the room or not, someone who's honoring to God. Uh, before Zeke was born, before our oldest son was born, my seminary professor, he said, what are you going to name him? And I told him, Ezekiel. He's like, no one ever names their child Mayher Shallow Hashbaz. <laughs> Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. But it's true that many people never live up to their name. Is that true? I'm not implying anything about anyone in the room. Uh, think of the Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. The city has not lived up to its name. I'm not, I don't know who you're going for tonight. In the Jewish context of the Old Testament, names meant a great deal, though. A great deal. What does Melchizedek's name mean? Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So re- reiterating that background we already learned from Genesis 14. Now look, look at this lesson he picks up. Was first of all, by the translation of his name, what? King of righteousness. Something that you might skip right past as you read through your Bible reading plan in Genesis 14. But the author of Hebrews picks back up on it and says, he's king of righteousness. 
You have Melech, which means king, and you have Tzadik, which means righteousness. And those put together, king of righteousness. Easy enough. And here the record of Scripture does tell us that this guy did live up to his name. He was a righteous king. He was a righteous ruler. He ruled with justice and fairness. He wasn't in it for himself. He cared about the people. This is the kind of ruler, this is the kind of priest that Melchizedek was. And what happens if you have righteous leadership? There's something else that will follow. Let's look at the second lesson we'll learn from the place of his reign. Look back at verse 2. He was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then secondly, what? Then also king of Salem, which means what? King of peace. King of peace. Melchizedek was a real king, and he ruled in a real place. This is before Jacob. This is before the 12 tribes of Israel. This is before Moses. This is before Joshua and the conquest. This Melchizedek, he ruled in a place called Salem. Where do you think Salem is? Scholars will debate this a little bit, but the majority opinion is that this is Jeru-Salem, Jerusalem, the original spot for God's chosen people. And just listen to Psalm 76. It says this, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. This is most likely the original spot. This is where Melchizedek ruled in Salem. But just like he lived up to his name as a king, the place where he reigned also reflected its name. It also lived up to its name. The word Salem should remind you of what word? Shalom, right? Which means what? Peace, wholeness. Melchizedek's rule was marked by peace. He was a righteous king and it led to something. It led to a peaceful rule. And when you boil, as we try to apply this, when you boil all of it down, everything we're doing in this world is always a search for what? For peace. There's not many people out there looking for trouble, although that's what they end up doing, but ultimately they're trying to find some kind of peace inside their heart. But mankind searches for this peace in vain. Why is it a vain search? And this is really important. Why do people search for this in vain day after day after day after day trying to find this peace that God could give? It's because everyone wants peace without righteousness. These two have to be together, peace and righteousness, constantly searching for peace, constantly searching for peace, but all the while trying to hold on to unrighteousness. We want everyone to be treated with equality. That's, that's the signal everyone's giving now. But then we go ahead and we kill thousands and thousands of babies every single year. We want promotions at work, but then we keep slacking off. And just showing up to work doesn't count. And we want more love from our spouses, but all they get from us is ingratitude. This is exactly what we do. We want men to respect women, but we continue to tolerate the porn industry. We lose our temper with people, get really angry with them, and then we get even more upset whenever they don't show us any respect. This is exactly what you see on social media every single day. We want peace without righteousness. We live in a society that demands justice, it demands tolerance, validation, respect, equality, and unrighteousness all at the same time. And you can't get it. You can't have both. That's one of the greatest virtues in our society is this. It's a willingness to validate everyone's worldview. That is one of the greatest virtues. If you take a poll out there, the greatest virtue is for you to validate their opinion. I was talking with a guy on campus this past week, a very nice guy. We had a strategically cordial conversation, talked about the gospel, talked about it with with clarity, talked about it being decisive, though. 
talked about it being something that called for a decision, called for someone to be right and for someone to be wrong. And at the end of it, you know what he told me? He, you know, again, he was a nice guy. He wasn't really all flared up, but he said, it's like, I don't really like this because he said this, you didn't validate my opinion. And I, it's like, well, that's true. But I didn't think about it until later on. It's like, wait a minute, am I going to stand out on campus every single week so I can just validate everyone's opinion? That's, that's not really going to be my goal. But it's not just in society, it's in our hearts as well. As long as we nurture unrighteousness in our hearts and in society, we're not going to find any peace. It's impossible. It's ultimately a self-defeating system because it's inherently rejecting the only one who can offer true peace, and that's Christ himself. Turn to Psalm 85. There's a beautiful illustration of this concept of righteousness and peace. Psalm 85. Start at verse 4. This was most likely during the time after the Babylonian captivity. And just because they were out didn't mean everything was going well. Because the psalmist, was, the psalmist as you will see here, it was in search of peace with God. Look at verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not yourself revive us again that you, your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He's in search of peace with God. And then look at verse 8. This prayer, as he prays it, he discovers an answer. He sees God's answer. And look at what it is. It's very illuminating. Verse 8. I will hear what God the Lord will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth, they've met together. Now listen to the last phrase. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Not necessarily a romantic kiss, but just showing that they belong together. Showing that they're connected. Showing that they're joined together. Righteousness and peace have to be together. The psalmist in Psalm 85 found the solution. And Melchizedek points us to that same solution of righteousness and peace. And there's only one person where you can find righteousness and peace existing together in perfect unity, and that is our Messiah. No one else. Melchizedek pointed to it, and Christ fulfills it. God offers you peace with himself now through the righteousness of Christ. You don't have to turn there, but you'll recall Romans chapter 5. The same two words that show up there. It says, therefore, having been justified, having been declared righteous, the same word, by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Righteousness, then peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want this righteousness, the only answer that I can give you, the only answer that the scripture is going to give you is going to be faith. You're justified by faith alone. And there's going to be absolute peace. Absolute, complete, total peace when Christ comes back. It's only in a small measure that we see in pockets around us today, but in temporary. But Christ is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God now. He's finished his priestly work. He's sitting there at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And when he, just the right amount to wear a perfect footstool for him to put his feet on. And he's going to come back, and all the prophecies of the Old Testament are fully realized, Isaiah 9-7, there's going to be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. No stop to it. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Christ is going to fulfill this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Righteousness and peace. This is the kind of priest king that Christ is. And Melchizedek teaches us this. Now look at number three. Melchizedek shows us that Jesus' priesthood faces no earthly restrictions. Jesus' priesthood faces no human limitations. It says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. And you can notice verse 8 as well. It says, it is witness that he lives on. So here, with this verse, I want to talk about the difficulty, some views, the meaning of it, and then how it's important. Is there a difficulty here as you read this verse? Is this a tough verse to read, or is you just didn't think about it yet? Let's think about it for a second. Let's think about why it's difficult. It says he's without father. It says he's without mother. It says no genealogy. We can maybe handle that, but then it says he doesn't have beginning of days, and he doesn't have end of life. It's witness that he lives on. All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> is Melchizedek an eternal orphan alien from outer space? Is that what he is? Got one yes? Okay. Let's look at some views. Think about some views here. One view is this, that Melchizedek is the Messiah. We've talked about this already a little bit, but there's the Melchizedek Messiah view. I said there's only three places in the Bible that talk about Melchizedek, which is true, but there are several other places within Jewish history where Melchizedek is talked about and really talked up. He becomes a really big deal within Jewish history. Um, There's a view that Melchizedek is going to bring the final restoration in the end times, and that he's going to be coming back, Melchizedek. Um, This was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you're going to go over the Dead Sea, to look it up, go to cave number 11, and you'll see it. It It says things like this. It says that Melchizedek fulfills Isaiah 61. Where it, where it was applied to Jesus, where Jesus proclaimed release to the captives, recovery sight to the blind, it says that Melchizedek is the fulfillment of that in the end times. And this, this, all, this old document also said that Melchizedek is the, the Messiah, the prince, in Daniel chapter 9. And it also says this statement, it says, And your Elohim is Melchizedek, who will save them from the hand of Belial. So that's one view you see in Jewish history, the Melchizedek Messiah view. And then there's always a critic, always a critic. As we get to the second view, there's a critical view that people have as they read this. They say, okay, so the author of Hebrews, he must have known about those old documents. He must have been influenced by them. He must have bought into all those crazy ideas about Melchizedek, and he just went ahead and inserted them in the book of Hebrews. That's the critical view. But as I think hopefully all of us agree, there's way too much speculation involved in those to assume that the author of Hebrews would have bought into it. And while there are several things written about Melchizedek, outside of Scripture, the author of Hebrews is only interested in what? He's already shown us what he's interested in. He's interested in Genesis 14. He's interested in Psalm 110. He's interested in the Scriptures. That's what he wants. So that leads us to the third view. I'm going to call it the remarkable silence view. The remarkable silence view. If you were to talk about the priesthood, to a group of Jews in the first century. And you say, hey, there's a new priest. What would they want to know? Where did he come from? Where, 
Well, he's not going to be a guy from he's not going to be a guy from the tribe of Judah. Where did he come from, though? Where who were his parents? What about his genealogy? Uh, what's what's his age? Is he 25 or is he over 50? What what's going on here? The people who came out of the Babylonian captivity, they went back to Jerusalem. They were trying to reestablish the priesthood. You listen to Ezra, uh, Ezra chapter 2. This is how seriously they took it in ancient Israel. It says, of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and he was called by their name. Listen to this. These searched among the ancestral registration. They looked back into the genealogies. All the details, but they could not be located. They could not be discovered to be legitimate. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. They took this very seriously. So again, if someone in the first century wanted to talk about a new priest, what are the people of Israel going to want to know? What are people from a Jewish background going to want to know? They're going to want to know if he's legitimate. But there's no information. There's nothing else about this Melchizedek than what we've already read in Scripture. Nothing else. It's remarkable silence. There's no noise. It's only silence. So what does this verse mean? It says, without father, without mother. In Greek, those words do not mean that they're fatherless. It doesn't mean they're orphaned. It just simply means father unknown. Mother unknown. We don't know who they are because it doesn't tell us. It's that simple, okay? We don't know who they are. And this is without genealogy. Again, that's a simple one. There's no record. There's no recorded genealogy of Melchizedek anywhere in Scripture. There's none whatsoever. And here's a little more of a difficult one. It says, neither beginning of days nor end of life, etc. And here's what this means. The Scriptures don't record a single thing about Melchizedek's birth. doesn't tell us a single thing about his death. You say, okay, well, you just way oversimplified it. You made it way too easy. But listen, listen to the contrast. Listen to the other side. I know we're looking at really fine, detailed things, but we need to see what this is talking about. This would have been a very big deal for the, for the Israelites, for people with the, looking for uh, continuity with the Levitical priests. The Levitical priests could only serve from ages 25 to 50. Okay, So there's some time frames we're talking about. And then Aaron's death, who was a Levitical priest, his death is recorded very clearly and very deliberately in Scripture. <clears throat> you see in Numbers 20. So when all the congregations saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron 30 days. It's a big deal, marking the end of his life, the end of his career. What about Melchizedek? Is there any record of him, his death? Not, not a one. So let's think about how this applies to Christ. Everyone was fully aware that Jesus had parents, right? Everyone fully knew who they were. There was tons of records about this. They knew his genealogy. Matthew had recorded it very carefully. They knew about his birth. They knew about the birthplace. They knew about the shepherd's testimony. They knew about his death. So how does this all apply to Christ? That's the question we need to think through. How does all this information in verse 3 apply to Christ as our priest? Let's go to the importance. Here's the point. The point is that Jesus was part of a priesthood with absolutely none of the earthly restrictions to which the Levites were subject. He had none of the same earthly human restrictions that the Levites had. Jesus was exempt from all those. He was of a different order of priest. The whole point is that Jesus did not have to have a genealogical line of the Levites in order to be a legitimate priest. He was a legitimate priest because before the beginning of time, God had ordained that there would be a different priesthood, a priesthood according to Melchizedek, and that Christ would be in that line not in the line of Levi. 
One Bible teacher put it this way. He said, by this analysis of Genesis 14, the author of Hebrews has undermined the traditional belief of the Jews who attributed to the Levitical priesthood the highest possible value, showing that there's something of greater value, and that's the priesthood of Christ. Romans 6, 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Christ lives on. Now, it's not, that ju- it's not just that Jesus did not have to be a Levite. Look at this. It's that he should not have been a Levite. There would have been a problem if he were a Levite. Because he is greater than the Levites. And let's look at finally number four. Melchizedek shows how Jesus' priesthood is better than the descendants of Abraham and even Abraham himself. I could have worded that much better, but it's going to prove the point that Jesus is part of a priesthood that's way better than the Levites, way better than Abraham himself. See that in verses 4 through 10. Now, I promised you four points, and you think there's only five minutes left in the Super Bowl. Probably is going in the second quarter pretty soon, but we'll get through this, I promise. With this point, we're getting closer and closer to the heart of this main argument in the central part of Hebrews. And it's a little more extended, so we need to take it all together and summarize and see what the main point of it is. Look at verse 4. We'll read these verses. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. We already read about that in Genesis 14. Verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Wow, it's a mouthful. I want to summarize it for you, though. I want to talk about tithing. Tithing in the book of Hebrews. There's a tithing box. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let's follow the logic. One, Abraham, one of the most important men in Jewish history, paid tithes to somebody else. One of the most important men in Jewish history paid tithes to this Melchizedek. Number two, by God's commandment, the Levites deserve tithes. People had to pay them tithes. See the logic we're following? Number three, <clears throat> Melchizedek, who is not a Levite, receives tithes from Levi. See the logic? So, great guy. Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Levi deserves to pay tithes, but then Levi ends up paying tithes to Melchizedek. This is an astounding thing. We'll talk about it a little bit more. <clears throat> Now you say, how did Levi do it? We'll call it the loin tithe. It's a new tithe that we're coming up with at our church. He was in seed form, Levi, because he was a descendant of Abraham, in seed form did pay tithes to Melchizedek. That's the point he's making. So one of Abraham's descendants, they're all lumped in there together, showing that this guy Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and his descendants. So who's greater? What does the text say? Melchizedek the greater blessed Abraham the lesser what the text says. One calls one the lesser and calls the other one the greater. Now there's a little bit of scandal, a stumbling block here in the Jewish mind with this kind of statement. There would have been a stumbling block for these people. 
So much so that some people, when they've gotten to this passage, they try to twist it all around to say, Melchizedek handed over the priesthood to Abraham. Say, Abraham, here you go, you can have it now, because you're greater than I am. That's not the case. People have tried to make that work, but it doesn't work. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, greater than his descendants. Abraham's still a great guy. The Bible calls him a friend of God, doesn't it? The Jews in John 8, we talked about it this morning, they got very vicious when Jesus implied that he was greater than Abraham. Look at John 8, 53. I'll start reading. John 8, 53. It said, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham, who died, right? You're not greater than him. You're not saying that, are you? The prophets died too, whom you make yourself out to be. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. And you've not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. They said, okay, we'll just we'll, we'll drop the argument. No, they picked up stones and they, they threatened to stone him, threatened to kill him. But Jesus went and hid himself, went outside the temple. So here's the basic argument. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and if he's greater than Abraham, then he must also be greater than that line of priests that came from Abraham. And you think of it as an illustration today. What if there is a company? Think of a technology company. You all love Everyone uses their devices. Everyone knows their logo. Everyone knows their name. But just theoretically pretend that there is a bigger company above them. No one knows their logo. No one knows their name. But this company, who everyone thinks is so great, has to pay them dues. That's exactly what's going on here. There's something greater happening or something more superior. That's what's there. So when we talk about Melchizedek, we're, talk, we're dealing with someone greater than both Abraham and Levi. And that's why it's so important for Jesus to be part of a different priesthood. Because he's superior. Jesus priesthood is the greater priesthood. And because of it, the whole point that he's been driving at in terms of our application is that because of this, we have a better hope. We have a better hope in Christ. This is the kind of priest that we have. But we have to ask ourselves the question, as we're sitting here, as we're going to face a new week, do we care? Do we care that this is our high priest? For people who are in Christ, do we care? Has it hit our hearts again that we have him? He's, he's our possession. He's offered himself to us. This great high priest, he says that we can have him, we can hold fast to him. We can have this hope. He's planned from all eternity to be your high priest. This is an amazing truth. We don't deserve it. But that's been his plan, and this is what he's offering to you tonight. Concerning Melchizedek, we have a lot more to say. But for now, if you want to go watch the Super Bowl, we'll let you do that. Before we do that, let's ask the Lord to help us as we apply this passage to our hearts this week. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you do have passages that challenge us, passages that cause us, that make us stop and think and meditate and wrestle. And Lord, we do pray that we would be accurate with the way we understand your word. Pray that we'd be accurate with how we, how we think about it, the conclusions that we come to, and I pray that we'd be deliberate, strategic, and heartfelt as we, want, as we go to apply it, as we go to obey it, as we go to live it out, as we go to encourage other people with it. I pray that we would not neglect either. Pray, Lord, you would help us to honor Christ this week and help us to take hold of the hope that he offers us as our great high priest. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.